climate change in a sense is now a problem with a clock. We have a, you know, a ticking clock if you're going to meet two degrees uh, and even more so if you're meet, to meet 1.5 degrees. It's not enough for every country to do what they can. We have to be measuring progress against what is determined uh, to be necessary by science. Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Environmental Economics Program and the Harvard Project on Climate Agreements. As listeners to these podcast episodes know, I engage in conversations with leading experts from academia, private industry, government and NGOs, with our focus always on environmental economics and policy, typically within the realm of climate change policy. Today, we're fortunate to have with us someone with experience in at least three of those sectors, academia, NGOs, and government institutions, and someone who is exceptionally well qualified to talk about the governance and politics of climate change policy. I'm referring to my colleague and friend, Navros Dubash, the professor at the Center for Policy Research in New Delhi, coordinating lead author and working group three of the sixth assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and a former senior associate and policy analyst, respectively, at the World Resources Institute and the Environmental Defense Fund. Navros, welcome to Environmental Insights. Thank you so much, Rob. It's really wonderful to be here on this show with you. So I'm very interested to hear your impressions about the institutional dimensions of climate change policy. But before we get into that, uh, our listeners are always interested to know how people such as yourself came to be where you are and, and where you've been. So where did you grow up? Well, uh, Rob, I, I won't give you the full story, but I grew up uh, largely in India with a, a few years in the UK while my father was working in the Indian embassy there. Uh, I mm -hmm. went to college in the U.S., and I've been back in India for about uh, getting on 20 years. And now. college in the U.S. was at Princeton, is that correct? That's correct, yes. And you, your bachelor's degree is in public and international affairs. What does that consist of? Well, you know, uh, most South Asians uh, who, who can manage uh, end up studying engineering. It's sort of the South Asian path, as it were. Uh, and right. I started out doing that, and I found myself more drawn to economics, politics, sociology, and I was fortunate to have the option of uh, jumping ship and joining the Woodrow Wilson School uh, of Public Policy. And so I, I and I enjoyed that oh, a great deal. Oh, good for you! I didn't realize that. So now, graduate school was at the University of California, Berkeley. Yes, indeed. Uh, at a at a niche program uh, that is well known in the environmental community, but not necessarily outside the environmental community called the Energy and Resources Group, uh, founded, in fact, by your colleague, John Holden. Absolutely. And for that reason, I'm somewhat familiar with it, but probably not all of our listeners are, as you suggested. So uh, uh, can you give us a, a very brief description of the Energy and Resources Group? No, certainly. It's a really interesting program. It was, it was founded around the time of the oil crises with the 
underlying idea being that environment, environmental and resource questions really required an interdisciplinary approach across engineering, natural sciences, and the social sciences. And so it's a, a small group of professors who got together to found this program. Uh, uh, and as a student, you work with those professors, but you can also work more broadly across the Berkeley campus. Uh, so I had an economist, uh, a sociologist, and a geographer on my dissertation committee now, of course, many years ago. But that gives you an example of the sort of uh, breadth uh, that uh, we were allowed to bring to our, uh, to our education. And, and who were those three people you're referencing? Uh, so I was looking at, uh, I was very keen on looking at, at village level issues uh, in India. And so I had a microeconomist from India, Pranab Bardhan, uh, a well-known economic geographer, Michael Watts, and mm -hmm. a sociologist, Rachel Schoen. Oh, that is interesting. That's, that's a diverse committee, indeed. So what was your first job out of school? <laughs> well, the first job out of school actually plugs right into this conversation, uh, Rob, because uh, as an undergrad at Princeton, uh, you know, uh, students are encouraged to do a policy conference and a policy task force. And mine was actually on climate change. Uh, and that was in 1989, well before these uh, uh, negotiations that we've both been tracking actually got started. And when I right. got out of, uh, uh, out of college, I was looking around for a job. I'd spent my time traveling through uh, the Narmada Valley, which is the site of a very contentious dam uh, project. And mm -hmm. so I tried to get a job at the Environmental Defense Fund, uh, which mm -hmm. actually was working with activists in that area. And at EDF, they told me, look, we don't have a job in that program, but we do have one in our climate program. And we're looking for somebody to set up a global network because we think that there are going to be global negotiations starting up on climate change. And so at the ripe old age of 21, I was hired to establish what became the Climate Action Network um, straight out of, uh, out of college. And so I was the, the first international coordinator of, of Climate Action Network, or CAN, which is now a very large uh, So network. you and I share something additional I wasn't aware of that because I also worked for the Environmental Defense Fund. I worked full time for them for a couple of years. Right. I know I wasn't aware yeah, of that. Yeah, but mine was not on climate change policy. It was out in California years before you were with them. I was working on California water policy, which as you know is a, a huge issue in that state. So now how, do, how what what's the path that eventually took you to the Center for Policy Research? I imagine there are a number of stops along the way. Well, a couple. Uh, so I had two absolutely fabulous years from 1990 to 1992 working with uh, EDF and coordinating mm -hmm. this network. And that culminated in the Earth Summit in 1992. And I really felt deeply inadequate all through those two years. I felt I didn't know enough, didn't have enough experience, knowledge. And I determined to go back to grad school and actually mm -hmm. immerse myself in a much more uh, in, in fundamental concepts and understandings. And so I did that for several years. Uh, and when I emerged, I joined the World Resources Institute um, and I was working on something quite different, looking at financial flows and the environment, looking at the spread of institutions like regulators around the world and how that shaped uh, the flows of money that then shaped in turn resource use. And after a few years of doing this, um, my partner and I decided, look, you know, uh, if we are ever going to make a, the, take the plunge and go back to India, this is, this is the moment. And so we went back in around 2003, and after jumping around a few places, I found that 
the Center for Policy Research gave me a really solid platform and a very open, welcoming and intellectually stimulating space to build a program. And so over the last 10 years, I've been building a research program around climate change, uh, energy, electricity and air pollution. And that's that's what I'm doing today. And for anyone who's not familiar with it, can you tell us a bit about the Center for Policy Research? Yeah, absolutely. So, so CPR is one of the older think tanks in the on the de- in the Delhi landscape. We are coming up on fifty years, so we've been around for a while. It is a multidisciplinary uh, think tank, so people mm-hmm. from different disciplines, but also working on different issue areas. So, we have a very strong uh, political science team, for example, look at electoral politics and political trends. We look at urbanization, foreign policy in the South Asia region, and the, and beyond. Uh, we have, uh, obviously, a big environment uh, program, and we have a program on law and regulation. So, so one of the things that distinguishes us a little bit is that we tend to be perhaps slightly more academically oriented. Most of us mm-hmm. publish quite widely, and we try and mm-hmm. do policy research on the back of that uh, academic and published analysis. We see that as a form of discipline. So would you say it's somewhat similar to the Brookings Institution in the U.S.? Is that a fair comparison? Potentially, uh, potentially, it, it, you, you could say that I would, I would say that we're perhaps a little less closely identified with any particular political party uh, ah, in good the point. spectrum than the Brookings Institution is perceived to be, perhaps. I bring it up because Brookings sort of combines political scientists and economists and then some other disciplines as well. But, but that's a good point that it's, it is cer- certainly as a partisan identification. You know, you, something else that you and I share, of course, is having been involved in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and we've had a number of guests who have served in various capacities on the IPCC, but we've never really talked about it. Now, anyone who follows climate change policy, as our listeners do, has certainly heard about the IPCC and its re- reports, but they may not actually know what the IPCC is and what it does. Can you offer a brief primer on that? I can do my best. I, I will say that we just submitted our chapter, and so I'm I'm a little bit shell shocked at the moment. But I'll try and uh, uh, mm-hmm. I'll try and sort of move past that. So the IPCC is a is I think actually quite a fascinating body. It is in a sense authorized by governments, but is in a, it is composed of independent academics, uh, sometimes nominated by peers, sometimes nominated by uh, by governments, and our job is to assess and I use that word carefully, assess rather than review the literature. So you assess the literature in, across three different areas. There's a working group on uh, the science, a working group on impacts, and a working group on the response strategies that you and I have both been uh, uh, involved in. And so we work in, in teams of researchers, multidisciplinary teams, cross geographies, uh, with an effort to make each of these teams diverse. So our chapter had, I think, on the order of 11 or 12, authors and over several years we pulled together the literature and assess what it implies for policy. It's very important that IPCC chapters are policy relevant but do not cross a line over uh, to being policy prescriptive. So that's kind of one of the fundamental tenets and the other is that the rigor is maintained through multiple rounds of review. So we've had three rounds of review by peers, by governments, uh, and each time we've had on the order of a uh, thousand plus thousand to a thousand two hundred comments, each of which we've had to reply to uh, line by line. So, as with any process, it's not infallible, but there are several checks. 
uh, and I think it's uh, it's a pretty robust process. Uh, and personally, I've learned a lot from being part of the IPCC. Yeah, so I, I certainly have as well over the years, particularly through what are, that last stage you mentioned, which are the, the government approval sessions, because the, the panel, an intergovernmental panel, actually refers to the countries, not to the academics who are essentially drafting a report in terms of this summary for policymakers. So it's an interesting relationship, I found. It is indeed. And, and in fact, as you mentioned, the final approval process is a process through which the scientists actually present, in a sense, their findings, and the governments go back and forth with them to seek clarification, interpretation, mm -hmm. and of course, science is not an absolute thing. You know, you can present the same data two or three different ways, and the right. governments are often very probing because alternative implications of data presentation carry different uh, political uh, out potentially political outcomes and so they're obviously very attuned uh, to that and so our job is to be aware of the political context but not in a sense pander to it while making sure that the representation is true to the underlying science and information base uh, so it's an interesting process. So that takes us, you know, conveniently to thinking about the institutional dimensions of climate change policy, which is one of the aspects of the chapter that you've been leading at the IPCC. Now, you followed the politics of climate change policy, not only in India, but in other parts of the world. Can you say something about any key sort of generic insights? So not specific to India, but generic insights that have emerged from your studies over many years of the institutional and political dimensions of climate change policy? Yes, I think this is, I, I got interested in this set of issues uh, because I find it is really quite understudied compared to say uh, the study and analysis of, of targets, emission targets or emission mm -hmm. policies, which of course you work on uh, a, a right. great deal. And, and, and the argument that I've slowly come to, to make uh, on why institutions are, are important is that if you think of a target for the future, these days people talk a lot about net zero targets, what is the mechanism through which future targets translate into current action? Mm -hmm. There needs to be some kind of interlinking mechanism through which we both decide what target is reasonable as well as think back to what we have to do today in order to achieve those targets. And if there are obstacles to that action, how we overcome those obstacles. All of those tasks are really, uh, really require institutions. And by institutions, I mean both organizational forms or rules of the road. So we might need climate laws. We might need coordinating bodies. Uh, so let me give you a couple of the, the, the two or three sort of crisp insights that I think are worth thinking about because climate change in a sense is now a problem with a clock we have a you know a ticking clock if you're going to meet two degrees uh, and even more so if you meet to meet 1.5 degrees it's not enough for every country to do what they can we have to be measuring progress against what is determined uh, to be necessary by science so we have to have some process through which policies and actions are assessed and evaluated, we need to have a strategic dimension uh, to those mm -hmm. policies. And those aren't just for the energy sector, they're actually across the whole economy because agriculture matters to climate change, both on the mitigation and adaptation side, urbanization matters, and on and on. And so you need coordinating bodies. 
And if you think about most countries, they're organized in departmental silos. So how mm -hmm. does all this come, come together? How do the interactions between decisions get decided? Uh, so there's a strategy element, there's a coordination element. And the third element really is that addressing climate change is going to create winners and losers. And losers are going to try and block progress. So you need to find ways of mediating uh, conflict between potential winners and potential losers. Losers need mm -hmm. to be paid off uh, or, or be, t be shown or be sort of brought to the table in ways that they don't feel the need to register uh, opposition. Uh, potentially new uh, emergent industries like the renewable energy industry need spaces where they can articulate their interests. All of this also takes institutions. So the stuff, the place where climate policy needs to happen is really the institutional framework. Sorry, that's a bit of a long-winded answer, but uh, you've caught me at the end of a long research project on this. Now is very, very helpful, which makes me think about two very important countries in climate change policy, China and India. In the past, oftentimes people, and perhaps myself, uh, who didn't know better, um, thought of those as Two, two countries who could sort of be labeled the same, could be put in the same category. But in fact, politically, it's hard to think of two countries that are more different. We have the largest democracy in the world and the largest autocracy in the world that are very different economically in terms of per capita income, in terms of percentage of the population that's in poverty, that are very different in terms of their emissions and their energy portfolios. Can, can you comment on that, on the differences between the two countries? Yes, I think the China-India question uh, occupies us in India uh, quite a lot in terms of climate politics, but also beyond that in terms of economic mm -hmm. development. I mean, China has shown remarkable growth uh, and probably at an even more rapid speed uh, since its accession to the WTO at the turn of the, turn of the century. Mm -hmm. um, and we do get lumped together a lot in, in climate politics because we're the two uh, Asian giants. But if you mm -hmm. look at some of the aspects of difference you talked about, for example, just per capita emissions or emissions per person, India mm -hmm. is at around two tons per person, which is well below the global average of around four. And China is now at or above uh, European levels at about seven tons, uh, seven tons per person. And that's because it has grown extremely rapidly in the last few years. But in terms of climate politics, there's another interesting observation, right? In a sense, China has now, over the last 20 years, built up its infrastructure to the point where it can start thinking about, in a sense, what the transition is to a low-carbon future. India has actually not built up its infrastructure, and we are in an interesting place because our emissions are likely to grow for a while longer um, in order to mm -hmm. meet development needs. Now, the trick is going to be, how can India do this with a shallower increase in emissions than China exhibited? So China's trajectory was a bit like a, going up the slope of a mountain. India's has to be more like a hill where we peak our emissions at a lower level and sooner. Um, now, in a sense, India is also fortunate because we've not locked in this infrastructure and we still have uh, headroom for energy, uh, per capita energy growth at a time when renewable energy is cheaper than coal-based uh, uh, energy. So we have a chance to actually lock in a low-carbon future, whereas China actually locked in a high-carbon future and is now trying to unwind it. 
so that's a possible advantage. But the disadvantage is that India is a, a messy and chaotic democracy and that transition is something that is only incompletely controlled by governments. So I'll give you one example, right? If we were to move away from coal-based electricity, it has ripple effects throughout the economy. It has effects on regional economies, like in many countries, including the US with your West Virginia uh, uh, coal mines and so on. But it also has effects through cross-subsidies of coal transport that subsidize passenger rail in India, which is politically really important for a country that is really built around economic migrants. So if you take away that subsidy, the railways collapses. Public sector banks have been kind of pressured into lending for coal-fired power plants, so the banking sector is vulnerable to those shifts. And our fiscal situation is strongly dependent on fossil fuel taxes. So to unwind a coal or fossil economy actually will have ripple effects throughout the larger uh, political economy of India. And so that it's not just the economic costs that matter, but also the transaction costs. And I know this better for India than other countries. I'm sure it's true in other countries uh, too. But I think that is one story that I think is an interesting point of difference between India and China, uh, at least. You know, that is very interesting indeed. So look, thinking about India, um, I'm interested to know, before we get to bring it up to date by talking about COP26 in Glasgow, putting that aside for the moment, I'm interested to know what is your view of, of the very structure of the Paris Agreement? I mean, it's a very different approach than we had with the Kyoto Protocol, obviously. What do you think of the, the structure? Does it make you optimistic that this can be a path forward for a number of years, or do you have concerns? So the Paris Agreement when it was signed did make me optimistic uh, and I was in a relative minority uh, in India at the time. Many mm -hmm. people in India hold very closely uh, and to some extent as do I to the idea that the, a certain legal principle, the principle of common but differentiated responsibility and respective capabilities, it's a, it's a mouthful, uh, is core to climate politics and it basically means look we're all in the same boat but some people uh, probably pay, played a larger role getting us to the situation and therefore perhaps need to step up first and though that those people are the developed world as opposed to the developing world. And that has been sort of a central principle that undercut, uh, that, that under, underlay uh, uh, both the Framework Convention and the Kyoto Protocol. The Paris Agreement doesn't dissolve that by any means, but it softens it at the edges. Uh, mm -hmm. It doesn't mean it does. It it, it 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 suggests that every decision doesn't have to be shot through with this clear distinction between developed uh, and developing countries. So that was a concern to many people in India, and 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 we'll come back to why that concern may actually be realized. But I think the the positive part of Paris for me was that it essentially recognized that progress on climate change is not going to come because of hectoring or peer pressure at the international level. It's going to become, it's going to come because national politics in country after country shift, where countries find ways of telling a story about how low carbon futures are good for them economically and can sell that politically to their own people. And Paris basically gave countries space to figure out how to tell that story and make it happen. 
it's a learning by doing dynamic, which I thought was that's very through productive. the nationally through the nationally determined contributions. That's right. So every country puts on the table nationally determined contributions. They do it in ways that make sense in their national context, and then they raise them every few years. Now, a lot of people think that that raising of pledges will come from peer pressure. I personally think it comes from setting in place processes domestically that allow countries to figure out ever cheaper ways of decarbonizing and finding more and more ways of, of uh, generating non-climate benefits. In India's case, for example, lower air pollution uh, that also accompanies uh, a lower carbon future. Now, so that's the optimistic part of the story. If I could just update that to Glasgow, what worried me a little bit in the build-up to Glasgow and the predominance given to the 1.5 degree target mm -hmm. was that in order to meet 1.5 or to keep 1.5 alive as the political narrative had it, required every country to ramp up its ambition before it had fully tried to realize the ambition it had put forward just a few years ago in Paris. And so the, the, the Paris machinery is designed as a learning by doing machinery. And if you compress the time scale, then countries actually don't have a chance to shift their national politics. Uh, and that worries me a little bit because I see, I see a tendency to return to a story that says, look, we have a finite pie, we have to scrabble over how to divide that pie, instead of going home and saying, how can we benefit at home in ways that our populations will support uh, as we transition to a low carbon future. So truly, uh, the Paris Agreement itself refers to the nationally determined contributions being updated every five years, but by the early part of the second week of COP26 in Glasgow, um, the leadership from the United Kingdom was actually urging countries to come back one year from now in Egypt with an updated NDC, which I would point out, uh, former Secretary Kerry, uh, only two hours after the adjournment said that the United States would not do. And I believe the European Union also said that it wouldn't do it one year from now. It's not going to change its NDC. Absolutely. And I think, I think that I think the, the, the risk is we are pulling on that Paris string uh, and it really is at risk of unraveling because the question then becomes, as you said, if the US and Europe deem their NDC sufficient, uh, then what is to stop every country also self-deeming their NDCs sufficient? And the underlying issue is that we do not have a commonly agreed upon benchmark on how we judge whether an NDC or a nationally determined contribution is either ambitious or equitable. Is it ambitious as compared to a model that says, look, here's a least cost pathway? There's no particular reason why that should be a benchmark of ambition. If you talk about what's equitable, how do you decide what is an equitable uh, allocation? Is it equal right. per capita emissions? Is it against some sort of modeling scenario? Every country really can tell a different story and probably defend it uh, reasonably adequately. And so, and so if we get into a world where we are judging countries and each country is judging the other, it is going to be, it is going to distract from the underlying task of figuring out how to tell a story at home about how you do more. And I think that's where our efforts collectively should be. So when I think about the Glasgow 
climate talks, one of the things that I remember was when I left at the end of each workday, I was confronted with the demonstrators outside. And so what I wanted to ask you about, Navros, is this as a sort of our final question, because we only have a couple of minutes left. And that is, is that something that we saw in 2019 on hiatus to some degree in 2020 because of the global pandemic, but back again in force in the year 2021 was a heightened degree of youth movements of climate activism uh, in Europe, in the United States, in, in many other parts of the world. So I'm interested in your personal reaction to these youth movements. I mean, how when you see them, whether it's on television or in person, what's your reaction to them? Do you think that they're going to be major positive contributors or otherwise? Well, Rob, let's not forget I got my start here as, a, as an organizer of a civil society movement, right? The Climate Action Network. So I'm, I, I think that the motive bar for a lot of change uh, lies with these youth movements. I think mm -hmm. that where we've seen progressive politics in many countries, it has been stimulated uh, uh, by these youth movements. Uh, but mm -hmm. I want to I pivot a little bit to also say that, um, uh, you know, one of the things that came out of, uh, of Glasgow is a great, and it worried me a great deal, is growing skepticism, including among the youth movements, but also among some of the developing countries, right? Mm -hmm. They were arguing for uh, more finance to be on the table, the fact that the developed world failed to deliver uh, its $100 billion pledge, uh, I think certainly rankles. The fact that issues like loss and damage, very important to vulnerable countries, didn't get the, uh, the sort of concrete outcomes that people were hoping for. Um, these, and, and, and the fact that, that, in a sense, I think where the youth movements have it right is we are in a trap, I think, where we are asking countries to give ever more ambitious pledges often to the future. But it's easy to give an ambitious pledge in the future when the current crop of politicians isn't around to be held accountable. It's harder to say what you're going to do in the next five to 10 years. But it's the next five to 10 years that is going to determine our future. So in, if anything, I think we need more action across the world, including in the developed world. And I really hope that your president manages to push through the Build Back uh, Better bill, for example, I think it would give the US a lot more credibility, uh, which I think it suffered from a little bit at Glasgow. I, I would love to see a lot more money on the table. I would love to see issues of vulnerable nations uh, being put on the table. And I think some of the youth activists are seeing uh, uh, the absence of progress on, on some of these issues and the pushing back of deadlines, or, or rather the pushing back of pledges into the distant future. And that's unsettling and I think they have a point. So that makes a lot of sense. Indeed, it's often surprised me that we find that over and over again there's so much attention to increasing the ambition of pledges for the future when current and historical pledges has have not even been met that's true of the current of the original set of ndcs that came in, including from the european union and the united states and here's all this talk about making them more ambitious and certainly also drew as you were saying navros about uh finance and yet that is what a lot of the attention is to so, uh, alas, there's so much more we can talk about. You mentioned loss and damage. That'll have to be for a future conversation we have. 
Uh, instead, let me just thank you, Navros, very much for taking time to join us today. I'm, I've been delighted to be on this uh, on this podcast, Rob, and it's always good to talk to you. Thank you so much for inviting me. So my guest today has been Navros Dubash, professor at the Center for Policy Research in New Delhi. Please join us for the next episode of Environmental Insights, conversations on policy and practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.